Good morning. Welcome. Okay, no, forget it. You're not welcome. And stare at me like I'm an idiot. Aren't you going to welcome me too? Say welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Granted, I am paid to be here, so it doesn't really matter whether you welcome me or not. It's good to be here. I don't know why. I'm just excited about this morning. I had a good feeling driving in today. I think we're going to have a good morning together. It started off great. So it's good to see you all here. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. Oh, is that me? Is that me? Yeah, we're going to nip that in the bud right now. All right. So uh, it's good to see you. If you're a guest, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And uh, thank you for taking a risk and coming to church, uh, walking into a space you're not familiar with. And uh, being here today inside the program is my cell phone number. If you are a guest this morning or if you've been around for a while and we've never had the opportunity to connect personally, have some coffee if you're tuning in online uh, and you live in a warm, sunny place, let me know. We'll connect for coffee. Uh, happy to fly out in the wintertime to any place warm. So if you're part of the broader, but if you are here in town, I'd love to have coffee. Shoot me a text message. Would be happy to do that to get to know you a little bit, share a bit of my story, the story of Crossroads with you. All that is happening here. So thanks for being here. We're in our series, TED Talks. TED Talks, the book of Lasso. And I, I have to say this, um, if you are a guest today, we are going to get to the Bible, okay? Uh, I don't want you to think I'm not going to talk about the Bible. We talk about the Bible every week in here. We look at the wisdom of Scripture. And so I just want you to know, I will get there eventually. It might take me a minute, but I'll get there, okay? So we started this series four weeks ago. And we, we, every week what we're doing is we're looking at a character in the storyline from this wildly popular show, Ted Lasso. Now, if you've never seen Ted Lasso, don't worry about it. It's not a prerequisite. I'm going to do my best to help catch you up, all right? And so in week one, we looked at these two characters, Rebecca and Rupert. And uh, they were a picture, their kind of storyline is this picture of only love given away can break the chains of evil received. And we basically talked about the dangers that happen when we become people of vengeance, when we look to take revenge on one another. Because the underlying premise of this story of Ted Lasso is that Rebecca owns a football club and she hires this American football coach to come out, coach the team who knows nothing about football. And he's there hopefully to ruin the team that her ex-husband, who was horrible to her, loves dearly. And so she's just trying to stick it to him. And that's where we kind of talked. We talked about, well, what does Jesus have to say about this idea of revenge? And then in week two, we looked at the character of Leslie Higgins, um, who is the director of operations. And we talked about how peacemakers model loyalty and integrity. They model the loyalty and integrity of God in our everyday normal lives. And that makes us dependable and full of hope because we don't have to put it all on ourselves, right? We can trust in others. We can trust in the dependability and loyalty of this mystery that we call God. And then last week, we talked about this idea of compassionate curiosity. We looked at the, the character of Ted Lasso himself, and we said that compassionate curiosity assumes that people are doing their best with the hand they were dealt. That's the idea, right? And so we just talked about what does it look like to make positive assumptions of one another, to be curious about people and their lives and what they're going through, okay? So let me ask you a question this morning. Loosen up a little bit. Some of you are ready. Like, you've got your fill-ins. You're like, where's the first one? Where is it? I love my fill. Who are the fill-in people in the house? Raise your hand up nice and high. If you're online, digital filling in, kudos. That's wonderful. It'll be a second, so hold on. Okay. How many of you believe in, like honestly, you genuinely believe in second chances? Raise your hand up nice and high. You believe in second chances. Okay, that's good. Put your hands down. How many of you would be honest enough and say, nope, no way, 
Be honest, you, you've just had a bad experience, you've given people second chances, and you're out of them, like, forget it. Anybody? Y'all, some of you are just lying, okay? Um, and that's all right, that's a good place to lie, because we live in grace, uh, we've always been forgiven, we will always be forgiven, it's a lie of separation, so that's okay, you can lie. But here's the deal, right? <laughs> Come on now. Like, we've all been burned by a second chance, but we all love it when we get a second chance, you know? And one of the cool characters, like, storylines within the story of Ted Lasso is this thread between two assistant coaches, Coach Beard and Nate the Great. And there's this storyline between the two of them that really is about, and it centers on this big idea of second chances. What I would say the Bible calls, like, the Bible word for second chances is this word redemption. Redemption, right? And so there's this beautiful theme that kind of carries throughout the whole story, all three seasons that it takes to tell the story, of what does it mean to give a second chance? What do you do with it when it comes? And so there's these two characters, Coach Beard. Now, Coach Beard is this really funny, very intelligent assistant head coach with Ted Lasso. Been with him for a very long time. Traveled from America over to uh, Europe with him to coach this team. And he's a great, funny, quirky character, right? And then you have this guy named Nate. And he gets the, nick type, the, the nickname Nate the Great because he's a brilliant tacticianer when it comes to uh, football, when it comes to soccer. And we meet him in season one, and he's the kit man. He gets all the uniforms ready and cleans the shoes and takes care of all the towels, all that good stuff, right? And season one, we see Nate rise from being kit man to being an assistant coach, like developing plays, and he becomes really beloved. And then the second season is like, the, the fall of Nate almost, right? It's this journey of Nate the Great kind of allowing jealousy and insecurity to overwhelm his life. And throughout that season, like bitterness starts to set in. So much so that by the end of season two, if you haven't seen it, what happens is Nate has completely, he just completely turns on the team. He turns on Ted, who's dealing with panic attacks and they've kind of hidden them. And so Nate goes and he tells a reporter anonymously that Ted's actually having panic attacks. And in the season finale of season two, he storms off the field. He walks into the, uh, the locker room. He's angry at Ted. Uh, he, he's going to quit. He's super frustrated. He takes the big believe sign that's hanging above the office that everybody hits, that's kind of been a staple for the show, and he quits. And he tears up the sign. And he's angry, and he's bitter, and he feels like Ted has let him down, and he rips it up. And he quits. And then the season ends with, you see this picture of him now as the head coach for the enemy. Rupert has bought a team. And so Nate the Great is now wearing all black and he's joined this other team. And so season three then is really this big struggle that Nate has in the storyline of what does he do, right? It's the story of Nate going, I am now working for this person who has no integrity. I'm now like in this system that's very different than the system of, you know, compassion and forgiveness and understanding and curiosity. And so season three is like Nate kind of losing himself and trying to find himself. And finally, in season three, about halfway through the season, there comes a point where Nate has had enough. And Rupert has asked him to compromise his integrity just too much and is basically asking him to join him on this like escapade where they're going to cheat on their girlfriends, cheat on their cheat on his wife. And when that happens, in that moment, it's like his eyes are opened, he has kind of a salvation experience, and he realizes, this is not who I want to be. And so he just quits. He quits uh, as the head coach. He has nothing to do. So what does he do? He goes and he works with his girlfriend at his favorite Greek restaurant as the head waiter. 
So he goes from the Premier League head coach, like let's say coaching a team, well, not the Denver Broncos, but let's say like, I don't know. I mean, a team that might win. And so, but coaching in that level, right? Let's just say that level to, you know, waiting tables. And he's happy there because he loves his girlfriend and it's a simple life. But at the end of the day, he's not happy and he finds himself in this bottom of a pit, right? And he's holding the shovel. Y'all ever been there? Y'all ever found yourself in like a deep place in life and you're like, how did I get here? And then you look in your hand and there's a shovel. You're like, oh, that's right. I did it. So he's waiting tables, he's working there, and he's kind of lost all hope. And in episode 11 of season three, it starts off, and what happens is two players and the new kit man show up at the restaurant. And they see Nate there, and they're like, give, like it's super sad. They're like, what is wrong? What are you doing here? And he's trying to tell him he's happy. And what's fascinating is this crew has come representing all the players from the team. And they want Nate to come back. They have forgiven him. And they're trying to get him to come back. And included in this trio is, it's really interesting, is the new kit man, whose name is Will, the team captain, and then another player named Colin. And if you watch the series, you'll see that in season two, like, Nate was brutal to Will and to Colin. Like, absolutely brutal to him. Like, in his, in his anger, in his jealousy, he really humiliated both of these people. And so they come in, and they've all forgiven him, and they want him to come back. And Nate is kind of overwhelmed, and he's like... He just can't believe that he's being asked to come back. And he says, oh, I can't believe Ted wants me to come back. And they said, well, we haven't talked to Ted yet. <laughs> and he says, but before we, wanted to, before we talked with Ted, we wanted to know if you would want to come back. You know, and he knows the pain of his history. He knows the betrayal that, that he, he, he really like, exiled on the team and on Ted. And he just says, I just don't think it's I just don't think it's a good idea. And so the players leave. And then a few minutes later, we see in this episode the head Higgins, who we looked at uh, last week. Higgins walks into the office with Ted is in there. And he says, you know, a little birdie told me that all the players want Nate to come back. And Ted's like kind of taken back by this. He's like, oh. And so Ted starts, he looks at Higgins and he says, hey, like, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think about Nate coming back? And in true Higgins fashion, I love what he says. He says, well, I do believe in second chances, Ted. That's why I'm still married and all my sons are alive. <laughs> so he's super chill about it. And then Ted looks over at another assistant coach, a guy named Roy, we're going to talk about in a, in a week or two. And Roy looks at him and, and he says to, says, hey, how do you feel about Nate coming back? And Roy and his like usual gruff, I don't have time, I can't be bothered by you and your issues and your problems attitude. You know, he basically just looks at, at, at Ted and says, I don't care. He's great at stuff I suck at. And he's like, I got to go. I got stuff to do. And he leaves, right? And he walks out. And so it's now Higgins and Coach Beard sitting at a desk and Ted. And so Ted looks over at Coach Beard and he's kind of giving some thought and he says, well, what do you think, Coach Beard? What are your thoughts? And emphatically, Coach Beard makes it very clear his thoughts on the situation about giving Nate another chance. And Coach Beard looks right at Ted and he says, if you bring that Judas back, I will burn this place to the ground. <laughs> so clearly Coach Beard has an issue with second chances, right? And that's kind of where it ends. Like that's kind of where in that moment the story kind of just hits the pause button. And it's a great moment that like 
we realize in Coach Beard's response, right? You bring that Judas back, I will burn this whole place down. That like at the end of the day, second chances are amazing to get. They're amazing to receive, but they are painful to give, right? So for those of you that have been anxiously awaiting for those fill-ins, there's two for you right there, bam, right? We love to receive and we all feel like we deserve a second chance, but if we are honest with ourselves, we know that it's painful to give second chances. It's painful to, to reestablish trust with someone. Now, why is that? Well, because at the end of the day, we all live with a bit of fear of getting hurt again. Like if someone needs a second chance from us, it's because we've been hurt by their actions. If we need a second chance, it's probably because we have hurt someone or we have disappointed them. And so it becomes difficult because we go, do I really want to put myself out there again? Do I really want to experience that level of pain yet again? And maybe it's hard because at the end of the day, we don't believe that that person deserves it. We don't believe that they're sincerely uh, remorseful for what they've done. We don't believe that they have proven themselves to us. And so we just, at the end of the day, we're like, they don't deserve it. And so we withhold the second chance. You know, the most powerful and amazing story of second chances, of redemption that we see in the scriptures, I think is the story of Peter, who denies Jesus three times, and in the Gospel of John, and only in the story of the Gospel of John, has this encounter with Peter, again, post the resurrection, where he finds redemption, and Jesus kind of offers him the opportunity to get a second chance. And so I want to look for a moment at just this story. And there's these two parts to it in the Gospel of John. Now remember, when we look at Scripture, when we, when we engage with Scripture, remember that it's a book of wisdom. We're recognizing that people are always trying to figure out God. How many of you all have God figured out? Oh, good, we're finally in agreement on something, right? And so the Bible is no different. The Bible is spiritual, our spiritual ancestors in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition who are trying to figure God out. And here's the thing, sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they get it wrong. How many of y'all ever get God wrong? That one you can raise your hand for. That's not a trick question, right? But what's cool about our scriptures is that we get both. We get the moments where it's like brilliant and beautiful, and we get moments where it's not so much. And so I'm not a literalist. I take a historical, metaphorical approach to the scriptures. I think they're beautiful. I think they're full of wisdom. I think we can learn a tremendous thing about ourselves, about one another. We can glimpse into the mystery of God. It's powerful. They're what we have. They're the best we got. And so as we look at this today, if you're re-engaging with scripture, just know like it's a safe space to question and to explore and to recognize we're talking about metaphor. Anytime we talk about the divine, no matter where we are, it is a mystery. And so we leverage language and metaphor to help us make sense of it all, right? So here's the deal. This is what it says. John chapter 18, few verses. It says that the other disciples, so now remember, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, and he's been taken in to the high council of the Jewish people, right? So it's their highest level of government. And so he's standing before the high priest, and he's standing before what's called the Sanhedrin, and they are kind of looking to see, is Jesus guilty? Should we turn him over to the Romans? So the story goes in the Gospel of John. Now, one disciple is able to go in because that disciple is better than all the other disciples according to the Gospel of John. If you read the Gospel of John, there's always a disciple that Jesus loves more, and that guy has got access to all kinds of stuff that nobody else does, okay? It's just a little bit of politics in the Gospel of John. It's quite funny, actually. 
So he's actually able to go back there because he has contacts in the Sanhedrin. He knows people. The high priest knows him. And so he's back there. But he goes out and finds somebody who can, and he sends this woman to go out and bring Peter in, right? Because Peter can't come in. So the other disciple who's known to the high priest, he went out, spoke to a woman who guarded the gate, right? She's like punching people's tickets for the show, all right? And so it's like, no soup for you. If you don't, you can't, you got no. But like, this disciple who's better than everybody else is like, I got you, Peter. I'll get you in. I'll get you in. He's with me, right? So Peter comes in. The woman says to Peter, as she's letting him in the gate, you're not, you're not also one of the man's disciples, are you? And Peter is like, no, 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 I'm not, not, not me, not me. Like, and in that moment, like, Peter takes his, like, belief sign from Jesus, right? And he's like, no, 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 not me. Nope. Don't know the man. I wasn't chosen by Jesus. Don't call me a disciple. His disciples were chosen, right? They were invited. You didn't just like show up and be like, hey, I'll be your disciple. It'd be wonderful. And then they'd be like, uh, let's see your credentials, you know? But Jesus had chosen his disciples, that, the inner disciples especially, those 12, those that would become known as apostles. And it's as if Peter like took that, his own little belief sign. He's like, nope, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with him. That's not me. And then it goes on, it says, now the slaves and the police, they had made like a charcoal fire there because it was cold. And they're standing around and they're warming themselves. And Peter also was standing there with them. And he's warming himself and he's just kind of listening to what's going on. And now this other group, they start to ask him, are you sure you're not one of his disciples? Right? Are you positive? And Peter pulls out his second belief sign. Right? And he's like, I think I said this once. I'm not. And he rips up another belief sign. He's like, no, that's not me. That's not me. I don't know the man. Never have. Don't want to have anything to do with him. Like he denies like, just being present. No, don't have anything to do with him. And then one of the slaves, this is the best part. Like I just want you to imagine this, okay? In the Gospel of John, during the betrayal scene, Peter gets frustrated, pulls out a sword, and cuts off one of the high priest slave's ears. And Jesus then comes over and he's like, what is wrong with you? Picks up the ear, puts it back on, and everybody's fine. Nobody's the wiser, right? <laughs> what? Nothing happened. No, it's fine. <laughs> I don't have a sword. <laughs> What's that on your tunic? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. That's not his blood or anything, right? Now, this is the best. Now, it says, one, it says, one of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, didn't I see you at the garden with him? Like, I'm pretty confident you cut the ear off of my brother. <laughs> That's probably the most awkward conversation in the Bible. <laughs> right? Like, that is not a pleasant scene of your Peter, right? And, but this guy's like, no, I'm pretty sure I would remember that face, you know? And Peter's like, he denies it. No, I didn't cut his ear off. Not at all. I, I don't know anything about this Jesus. I don't want to have anything to do with him. What idiot would cut somebody's ear off? <laughs> no way. Not me. And he rips up his third belief sign. Like Nate in the story only does it once. Peter three times. And it says that Peter at that moment when he denied it, the cock crowed and he knew, oh my gosh, this is what I've done. 
And as he's ripping up his belief science, as he's ripping up his, his like, I'm a part of what Jesus is teaching. I'm a part of what he's doing. I'm associated with him. He chose me. As he denies all of that, at the end of the day, he's just like, I don't even know him. I'm not associated with him. I just saw the crowd. I wanted to come hang out and see what was going on. It was like there was an ambulance. And I just needed to know what happened. But I don't know anybody involved here. And when that rooster crows, like Peter remembers Jesus saying, no, sorry, Peter. You're going to deny me. You're not going to follow me. You're not going to come in with me. You're not going to stand with me. You're going to leave me and abandon me. And with that in the story, it just moves right from there that Jesus is taken to Pilate. He's tried under Roman law. He is legally executed and he's crucified. Spoiler alert. He doesn't stay dead. It's not, I know it's not Easter, but we're going to just, I'm going to give it away. That, you know, big piece of the puzzle. Three days afterwards, a woman named Mary of Magdala, probably one of Jesus' closest disciples, is the first one to show up at the tomb and finds it empty and has this incredible experience. And she races back and she tells John and Peter and is like, hey, like, I went to the tomb and, and Jesus isn't there. And so Peter runs to the tomb right? And as he gets there, he has a foot race with the disciple that was better than everybody, by the way. You should read it. It's quite funny. And he gets there, and he finds the tomb is empty, like Jesus isn't there. He has this amazing experience that has to spark hope. And then we find in the Gospel of John, there's another scene that happens where the disciples are all scared, and they're in a room, right? And then one, like, Jesus just appears in the room with them and, like, tells them, don't be afraid, and they kind of chat for a little bit, and then Jesus is off to go talk to somebody else, right? They're having these wild experiences. And so Peter's certainly in there with the 11. Peter has gone to the empty tomb. He's had these amazing experiences, but yet in John chapter 21, where do we find Peter? Is he out telling everybody? It's amazing. It's unbelievable. You'll never know what happened. Uh, Jesus, he just shows up. He's there, and then he's not there, and then he comes back because Thomas was out in the bathroom, and we didn't know what was going on, and so he comes back in, and it was great. Is he doing any of that? No. What's he doing? In John chapter 21, he's back fishing. He's just back on the fishing boat. Because there's something in Peter, even with all those experiences, that he just probably doubts his own worthiness. And so what do you do whenever you fail at something you're trying, right? We do this all the time. We just kind of go back to what's comfortable. And so Peter's out fishing, and he's fishing there with a few others. And all of a sudden, somebody from the shore is like, hey, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no. And he says, throw it on the other side of the net. So they throw it on the other side of the boat. So they throw it on the other side of the boat, and they can barely pull it in. And in that moment, like Peter realizes, like, this is Jesus. And so he jumps out of the boat and he swims. He runs up to the shore and he falls down before Jesus. And I wonder what was motivating Peter in that moment. Like, why in that moment was he more inclined to that type of an emotional response to Jesus than, say, when he's in the room with Jesus and he appears? I think it's because over that short period of time, he finds himself back fishing, questioning everything, and he sees, maybe I missed another opportunity to talk to Jesus about, hey, I didn't really mean to. <laughs> there was a lot going on that night. I misunderstood the question, right? And I wonder if he like saw himself in the boat and he thought as he held that net, is this really what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? What if I don't ever, if I ever get another opportunity to talk with Jesus, I'm not going to pass it up. 
You see, I think Peter's remorse and his regret just got the best of him. And I mean that in, in a good, healthy way. It got the best of him. And I think Jesus knew that he needed redemption. And so he comes, and what do they do? They sit down together and they have breakfast. Make some fish. Jesus is talking with Peter. And in John chapter 21, verse 15 through 17, it says that after they had finished breakfast, Jesus looked at Simon Peter, and he asked him this question. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, there's all kinds of speculation. Like, what is the these? Is Jesus looking at the other disciples and saying, do you love me more than the other disciples? Is Jesus looking at the fish because Peter was out fishing? Do you, love, do you love me more than these? Is this, am I more important to you than the fish? Do you, do you love me more than this? And either way, Peter looks at him and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. Stop catching fish and feed my lambs. What are you doing, Peter? I just imagine the conversation. Peter's like, I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. Given what I've done, what everybody thinks of me, I'm a laughingstock. Everybody else stuck around. I tore up my belief signs right there in front of everybody. How am I going to feed? Who's going to listen to me? What does that have to do with it? And over the course of a conversation, a second time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, forget about all that stuff. By the way, I'm filling in some things here. It's a very short story. Forget about all your doubts. Forget about how your regret. Forget about how you feel. Let me just ask you the question again. Do you love me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so then Jesus says, well, then tend my sheep. He says, who's going to pay any attention to me? Jesus, are you not listening? I walked away from you. I was scared. I didn't know what, I, I don't even, I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know what to do. I thought I was going to be this rock. I thought I was going to be the one. What am I supposed to do? And, and, and Jesus, throughout the course, says, okay, Peter, I get it. Tell me what happened. I was busy. Really, Jesus? I got to live it? Yeah, Peter, just walk me through it. What happened? Well, you know John, he thinks he's the best. He can get in everywhere. And I was following and they wouldn't let me in. And so I was all nervous about being outside. And then Peter comes and uses his reference, gets me in. And the person who asked me to come in says, do you know him? And I just said, no, I don't know why. I just said no. And then I was just standing with a bunch of people and they asked me if I knew you. And I said, no, again, I felt terrible about doing it the first time, but then I just did it again. I didn't even think about it, Jesus. I mean, I just didn't even think. Like, I was scared, and I just, I said, no, I don't know you. And then, Jesus, like, I don't know if you remember, and a lot has happened since that night, but like, do you remember when I cut that guy's ear off? <laughs> She's like, yeah, rings a bell, rings a bell. Pete, rings a bell. Says, well, that guy's brother was standing there, and like, he happened to be right there, and now I'm really freaking out because he recognizes me, and he says, no, I know you were there in the garden. I know it was you, and I denied him, and I just left, and I heard the rooster crowing, and I, just, I don't know, Jesus. How am I, I, do I love you? I don't know. And he says, okay, Peter, I'm going to ask you this one more time. Simon, son of John, I know you denied me three times. I know you cut the guy's ear off. Got it. But in the midst of all that, can I ask you this question? Do you love me? And now Peter's like hurt. 
the text says that he felt hurt because he asked him this a third time. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. Okay, Peter, you got it. You love me, so feed my sheep. And in that moment, because Jesus knew something very powerful, because Jesus knew that love conquers all, even our own shame, even our own doubt, even our own insecurities, even our own failures, even our own disbelief in ourselves, that love could conquer it all. And for in that moment, Jesus knew that redemption for Peter, for Peter to find redemption, it meant reminding Peter that love, not perfection, is what put him on the team to begin with. Right? Peter's living his life as an adult. He was not chosen to go follow any other rabbi because he did not have what it took. That's the bottom line in that culture. Peter did not have what it took. No respectable rabbi was going to choose Peter to come follow him. He didn't have the education. He didn't have the IQ. wasn't it. But Jesus knew that Peter was full of passion and that he loved him. And it's interesting to me, in this moment, you would think, you would think that Jesus would say, Peter, do you know that I love you? You'd think Jesus would remind Peter, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that? And you'd think he'd say that three times, right? But here's the deal. Redemption, right, was about Peter believing in himself because that was what was the question. Peter never doubted that Jesus loved him. Peter never doubted God's love for him. He doubted that he actually loved Jesus. How can I say that I love Jesus when I walked away from him, when I denied him? I ripped up my belief sign three times. I joined Rupert's team. <laughs> but but Jesus knew that it wasn't his doubt for God's love. It wasn't his doubt for Jesus' love. He doubted whether his own love was enough given his failure. And Jesus keeps bringing him back to what matters is do you love me? Do you love me? And the answer was yes. And that was going to be enough. So here's what I don't want us to miss today. Redemption. Second chances, right? Redemption is about giving second chances when we see remorse and love. That's what Jesus saw in Peter. And so he offers Peter redemption. He offers him this second chance because he says, here's the deal. Clearly there's remorse and clearly there's love. And so when we think about our everyday normal lives, when we leave this place and we get to what's really important, as much as I want this to be super important in your life, it really isn't. The most important thing you do happens outside of this space. And as you go into those very important places where you are an everyday normal peacemaker, how do we live this idea of second chances out? Well, here's the thing. Peacemakers, remember and understand that we have an obligation and a responsibility to give away whatever we receive in Christ. That whatever we receive in Christ, in our understanding of God, through the person of Jesus, through that experience, we are under a commitment, a covenant, an obligation to give that away to the people around us. The writer of Ephesians puts it this way in Ephesians 4 verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, now here's the big, why? Because God in Christ is doing it with you. So you do this to others just as God is doing it in you. I love that it's not from, it's in, right? 
It doesn't say, the text doesn't say, forgiving one another as God from Christ has forgiven you, right? That there's something, no, it's just in Christ. It's your understanding in the nature of God as seen in the person of Jesus that you live in a place of forgiveness. You live in a place of wholeness. You live in a place of understanding that I have nothing to fear about God. That revelation has come through the person and the work of Jesus, through his life, through his teachings. My enlightenment, God has worked in my heart. So now, I know I've been given to say, now I have to give that away. I've got to put that out there in the world. And so we go back to Nate and we go back to Coach Beard, right? And Ted and Beard show this perfectly in their everyday lives. So later in that same episode, after a big win against their rival, Manchester United, right? Manchester City, Ted is sitting in his office with Coach Beard. And Coach Beard is getting all ready, going to celebrate. And Ted asks him, he says to him, hey, 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 hold on a second, Coach. Check this out. Check this out. He's got his computer open. He says, hey, just, just check this out for one second, right? And so Beard walks over and he looks over his shoulder. And what Ted has done is he's called up the security footage of when Nate tore up the belief sign. And, 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 and Coach Beard is like, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. I don't need to see this again. And Ted says, no, 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 no. I know you've seen this part. I just don't know if you've seen the whole thing. So Ted then kind of fast forwards a little bit and shows him Nate, who gets trapped in the room because after he tears it up and he slams it down, everybody that from the big wind comes into the, the, the locker room and in the office. And so Nate has to crawl under the, the, the table so he's hiding under the desk for two hours, Ted says. The whole team's hooping and hollering and celebrating, and that guy's got to hide under the desk. And as Ted's kind of chuckling and showing in this video, the camera starts to zoom in, you know, right on Coach Beard's face as he's looking over his shoulder and as he's looking down. And Ted's kind of watching the video. And he says, no, 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 and guess what, guess what? The cleaning crew comes in next. The cleaning crew comes in, and he's locked in there for another two hours. The camera shows Coach Beard's face as Ted's chuckling, having a good laugh at this. And Coach Beard is just kind of like, just getting more and more somber. And he says, look at this, Coach Beard. Look, 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 Ted. Now, by now, it's been like five hours. His legs are like jelly. He can barely stand up. And you see in the video, he's like trying to get his back up. And he goes to get out, but the doors are locked. And so he can't even go through the door. So he's got to climb out the window just to get out of the building. And he's laughing at him. And you see in the video, Nate kind of opening a window and he falls out, just clumsy. And Ted's laughing and he says, oh man, you know, coach, says the coach beer, he says, I don't know about you, but I hope that either all of us or none of us are judged by the actions of our weakest moments, but rather by the strength we show when and if we're ever given a second chance. Hmm. Stands up, taps on the desk, starts singing. <laughs> he starts singing like we belong to each other. <laughs> and, and you see like Coach Beard's face and it's just like, he's thinking and his head is lifted high and, and he's like, all right, well, Ted says to Coach Beard, you, you go have fun tonight, Coach. Go have fun celebrating. And he leaves Beard alone there with his thoughts, just, we rely on each other. <laughs> and Coach Beard, like, won't make eye contact with Ted, and he just kind of lets out this huge guttural grunt because it's like his night has been ruined. 
And a few minutes later in the scene, we find Nate at his house. And he's sitting at the table, and he's with his girlfriend, and he's writing a, an apology letter, a 60-page apology letter to Ted. Because he feels like he has to go back, and he has to make things right. And all of a sudden, as Nate's sitting there, the doorbell rings. And Nate goes over to the door, and there is Coach Beard standing there super ominously. His like, arms are crossed, deadpan face. Nate kind of sheepishly opens the door and says, are you going to kill me? And Coach Beard doesn't even respond, just with his arms quite very methodically, with this very nearly embarrassing tone, like humble tone. He just looks at him and he says, Ted and I met playing college football. He was the backup punter and I was the backup kicker. We never got in the game, but we spent a lot of time together, jogging, doing box jumps. And after school, we, we went our separate ways. He was dating Michelle, got into coaching, I got into prison. Nate's face is like, what? He says, when I got paroled, I had no money, family didn't want me, I had nowhere to go. So I looked up Ted. He took me in, fed me, let me crash on his couch, and in return, I stole his car. He said, I didn't get far, and I would have gone straight back to prison if Ted hadn't come down there and convinced those cops that he gave me the car. Pondering what Beard just said to him, Nate insightfully says, oh, just like Les Mis. <laughs> Coach Beard says, our stories are very similar to Les Mis, yes. And Nate, in confusion, like, is trying to back up a little bit, and he says, you went to prison. Like, why, what? Coach Beard said, yes, for stealing a loaf of meth. <laughs> throwback to Jean Valjean and Les Mis, who stole a loaf of bread, in case you're unaware of that joke. And they have this kind of funny moment. And he goes on. He says, I stole from my friend who forgave me, gave me a job, and a life. And it's so powerful because in this moment, he like just peers right into Nate. But he's peering in his own soul, right? He's looking into himself and he says, so to honor that, to honor that, to honor what was given to me, he says, so to honor that, I forgive you, I offer you a job, the life part's up to you. And what feels like an eternity of silence, you see the camera on Nate's face and a face that was filled with fear and confusion, a small smile starts to appear of relief. And in utter genuineness, all he says is, thank you. He just says, thank you. Coach Beard offers a small nod in the moment. And Nate says, are you sure you don't want to headbutt me? I think it might make us both feel better. And in this really beautiful moment, Coach Beard takes his hat, turns it backwards, slowly grabs Nate's face, brings him real close. Nate's eyes are closed, like just waiting to get headbutted. And just Beard gently brings his forehead to his and hugs him. Just gives him a big, huge hug and just quietly says, Monday, 10 a.m. That's redemption. That's understanding 
that what I've been given, I have to give away. See, Coach Beard knew, like, I can't go into work. I can't work with Ted and not give what Ted gives to me to other people. How am I going to? That's going to ruin the whole vibe. That's going to ruin the universe. That's just going to stop the capacity for love and winning and everything. But he knew that. He got it, that if I've been given kindness by this person, how do I not give it to somebody else? How do I not give it away? And when we recognize that, when we live in a space that says, what I have received from God, I am under obligation to give away. When I understand that I have received the truth of who I am, that I have always been forgiven, that God has always been present with me, that I have never done anything that could separate me from the love of God. I, have be- I believed in a lie at one point in time that somehow God was separated from me. But in Christ, I've learned, no, 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 no. That was a lie that I was under. All I've ever been given from God, from this divine mystery, is pure love and pure understanding and a sense of who I am and that I belong. When we live by that and when we give what we receive, we understand that giving second chances creates hope in the quicksand of regret. And if you have ever felt regret, you know it. You know that regret can choke the life out of you. And I've gotten to know some of your stories. And I've heard and I've seen through your tears the regrets of a relationship that was damaged and harmed and maybe even ended. And I've seen what regret can do, that it can strangle us because we feel like, what, I can't make it up. What am I going to do? But this is a way when we give the second chances, we create hope in this world. And it's a way that we experience hope and it grows because regrets will choke the life out of us. But here's what's so amazing about regret. It can also be very powerful when it's used correctly in our lives. It's a guy named Daniel Pink, and he wrote a book called The Power of Regret. And in this book, right, he writes about how regret can be this transforming thing. It can transform emotion into action. It'll use past disappointments to shape purposeful futures. And he talks about how there's healthy and unhealthy regrets. And if we'll tap into it and think about it correctly, it can move us from an emotion to action. And this is what he says. He says, too much regret is dangerous. It's dangerous. Sometimes it's devastating. It can lead to rumination, which severely degrades well-being and to the regurgitation of past mistakes, which can inhibit forward progress. This is what the Bible calls condemnation. Condemnation is oppressive. Condemnation we live under and it's about our identity and it holds us back and it tells us we're never worthy of love, we're never worthy of affection, we can't ever do any better and we live under the weight of it and that's what Daniel Pink is talking about, unhealthy regret. But this is what he says about healthy regret. He says productive regrets, they aggravate and then activate. I love that. And that's what the Bible calls conviction that we get aggravated by the reality of what we've done or what has been done to us, but it motivates us because we know who we are in Christ. We know the kindness and love that is the universe, that is what we call God, that we swim in and we live in. And we welcome that conviction because it shapes our future in healthy ways and says, I'm going to do my very best to never do that again. I'm going to do my very best to live this out.
So see, we can experience regret, but we don't have to make it a roommate. We don't have to charge it rent and let it live in our house, right? Regret can inform us without defining us. And redemption is that moment. It's that moment when regret moves from aggravation to activation. And that's redemption in parenting. That's redemption in relationships. It's redemption in our marriages. It's redemption at work. It's when that aggravation, when given a second chance, activates us into a different way of being. And so this morning, as we kind of wrap up, what is it that God's inviting you into today? We're going to be here for maybe 15 minutes. We've got communion, a couple of songs. Just a time to reflect. Maybe you've been living with regret. And maybe you've had an image of a God that points fingers, or maybe there's just this sense that you don't belong in this world. And the good news of Jesus is today, you can start walking in the redemption of God, who says, just love me. We'll figure the rest of it out. We'll figure the rest of it out together. Maybe there's somebody in your life who's been asking for a second chance and they've shown you love and remorse but just haven't been able to get past the hurt. Maybe God's inviting you to give a healthy second chance with some boundaries to that person. Maybe that's what God's inviting you into today. Maybe you're here and God's inviting you to show some remorse and show some love for someone that you've hurt that you need a second chance and you have to come and humbly ask for it and honor their response. But that's part of the healing. That's part of moving from condemnation to conviction to a better and brighter future. So as we have communion today and as we sing these next few songs, you're invited to sing. You're invited to sit and close your eyes, talk to God. If you're not sure about God, talk to the universe. If you're not sure about the universe, just sit quietly and listen. You might be surprised what happens. If you want prayer, there's something that you just, I just need to talk with somebody. We have some folks that'll be up here on my right and left that'd love to pray with you. You're welcome to do that. Remember our communion elements are gluten-free so everybody can take them. If this is your first time here, just a reminder, we practice what's called open table communion, which just means this moment is for everyone. This is God's moment, not mine, not crossroads. We don't get to decide who comes to the table. It's an open invitation to experience this divine mystery that is radical love. And these symbols just represent that love for us in the death of Jesus. His body broken for all, his blood given for all. And so there's symbols, metaphors to help us understand the depths of the reality that is God, that is love. So I invite you to stand this morning and come and receive communion and just sit with God for a few minutes. And then in a moment, we got one other announcement and then we'll give our blessing and get you out of here.